Really glad that you've joined us. This is a mission stream, and we're going to be running all week. My name's Steve, Steve Morris. I'm part of um, some of the leaders that help organize this. And um, I live in Cape Town. I've come from Cape Town here and um, serve on a project out there uh, to serve the poor on a township as part of our local church there. Um, and this is mission stream isn't just about going on missions overseas. Some of it is about that. It's about serving your friends. It's about evangelism tomorrow. Today's about church planting. Uh, the day after is about reaching the poor and reaching the margins. After that is about going to the nations. And then on the last day, I'm, I'm just really going to speak and pull it in about hearing God's voice on what the call on your life might be in any of that context. But really how loads of people ask us, how do we actually hear from God? You know, how do I know? How do I know he's spoken? We're going to be pushing into some of that. So I'd love you to journey with me and journey with us as we listen to some great speakers. I'm not going to take up too much time today um, because I want you to get the most out of Stu and Livy. Um, Stu and Livy planted and lead Emmanuel Church in Greenwich. Um, they've become good friends of my wife and I and um, honestly can tell you that I went, they don't know this, but I went to a talk on them talking about why plant churches when I was trying to figure out why everybody was talking about planting churches. And I can still remember some of what they said, which is pretty good because I can't remember last week's sermon. So that tells you that this will be well worth listening to. And uh, just give them a round of applause and they'll go for it. Thank you. Amazing. I can't even remember doing that talk. <laughs> But um, I'm glad you can remember it. We're, wait, uh, we're waiting for a lectern to arrive. In the meantime, we're going to balance our stuff on the projector and hope to not break it. Yeah, it'll be fine. Um, so what we thought we'd do, um, well done, first of all, for coming. Uh, don't know why you're all here. Um, I guess, I'm hoping, you want to understand something about church planting. Um, we're going to try and take you on a bit of a journey, um, through, particularly through the pages of the New Testament, the bit of the Bible that's not just about Jesus, but what happened after uh, Jesus and we're going to take you also on a bit of our journey uh, as a couple and being in church plants and also planting churches Um, and if there's time at the end which it might be a bit of a vain hope if there is time at the end it'll be great to see if there's any questions so that we can try and answer any any specific questions that people are coming with. Um, uh, I guess as many of you will know uh, Jesus was on the earth for around 33 years only three of them, he was really involved in public ministry. But in those three years, he called people to follow him. He called the 12 disciples. Uh, but there were others as well uh, that would kind of join their gang and traveled around with them. Um, and when Jesus called them, he said to them, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And it was an invitation for them to be his disciples. And it was an invitation for them to be trained in the mission that Jesus was on. Uh, and he went round with them and they would have eat, eaten together. They would have walked miles and miles together, uh, talking, sharing life. Jesus taught them. Uh, he, they would have listened as Jesus taught the whole crowds. But then sometimes he went away and he taught them extra bits as well. Jesus rebuked them sometimes. So when they did stuff that was stupid, he just said to them, no, no, that was wrong. You don't do it like that. You need to do it like this. Jesus also encouraged them. Uh, He kind of talked to them about what they were called to and who God wanted them to be. And so there was this kind of a culture and community that was formed of men and women following Jesus, being trained by him, being encouraged by him, being helped by each other. And they were all growing together to become more like Jesus as he trained them and he taught them. And uh, there was probably, in fact, by the time Jesus died, there was 
there was 120 left in the room in Jerusalem. So although there were crowds and crowds of people that had heard him, there was actually a quite a, a smallish community of people that were really still following him and belonging to him and being trained by him. Um, and then at the very end of his life, just before he ascended up to the heavens, he spoke to the disciple, his 12 disciples and that crowd generally, and he said to them, right now I'm going, all authority has been given to me, and now I'm speaking to you and I'm telling you to go and make disciples of all the nations. And uh, when they heard that, I, I can only imagine they must have heard something, they would have heard it through the lens of what they just experienced the last three years. He had spent three years training them to be his disciples, and now they're hearing him telling them, now you need to go and make disciples, and by the way, you need to go and make disciples out of the whole world. Now, I don't know if you've ever been given a job, <laughs> but you know, if someone gives you a job, you, know, you need to go and convert the whole world and teach them to obey everything that I have taught you and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is quite a task. Uh, and the, ta- the answer to the question, why church planting, comes really because what they did in response to Jesus' commission, Jesus' command, was they went and they started churches. They considered that what they had experienced with Jesus was something that they then needed to replicate with uh, the people that they were making disciples of. And that process has gone on and has gone around the world. Thank you very much. Couple of bits of good news there. Steve Morris has bought us a glass of water and I spotted a guy in the front row of a Tottenham Hotspur pillow. Now that is encouragement from the Lord. Um, So what we want to do is try and involve you in a little bit of the journey of what happened next. After Jesus ascended on high and gave this commission to 120 followers and 12 disciples who would become apostles, 11 at this point, become 12 apostles, uh, what happened next? What did they do? And we're going to go on a bit of that journey together and we're going to try and engage you in it a little bit as well to keep everyone on their toes. Uh, So that started off in Jerusalem. Um, You might know some of the story of the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were filled with power and uh, the apostle Peter stood up and he preached to the crowd that had gathered taught them about who Jesus was, taught them a bit from the Old Testament, called them to repent and to be baptized. And 3,000 people got baptized. And that was, is often, it's called the, the birth of the church. That really was the first church. The Holy Spirit had come, a new community had gathered. And so we're going to form our first church somewhere in the middle of the room. And I, I reckon I need about six or seven of you to be the first church in Jerusalem. Stand up. I know you're looking keen. Come on. Yeah, Adidas you, sweatshirt, oh, the guy behind, yeah. ginger hair, yeah, girl with a black headband, girl touching the hair. Yeah, stand up. And then, yeah, lady in the grey t-shirt. Right, this is the Jerusalem church. So you, you're going to be the church These are the new converts in Jerusalem. Christ in Jerusalem. You might be standing up for a while. So <laughs> sorry about that. We need one more. Uh, Puma girl, do you mind standing up? So I don't know your name. You have to be careful what t-shirts you wear, don't you? Otherwise we'll start naming you by your brand. Uh, so this church got formed in Jerusalem. You have to imagine there's only six standing up, but they actually represent 3,000 people who have become Christians. And uh, what happened was straight away they became the kind of church that was a, a replica, really, of what Jesus had been doing with his disciples. Okay, so there's some of the characteristics of that church, and you can find all of this in the book of Acts, but we're just going to explain it to you quickly like this. So this church was devoted to the Word of God. That means that 
they this gathered, is you, that's by the way. you, this you six, you, you three thousand. They gathered together to listen to the apostles teach them the doctrine of Jesus, teach them about the cross, teach them about the ascension, the resurrection, teach them about God's creation of the world, teach them about what it meant to be male and female, what it meant to sin and fall and be saved by Jesus. So they were they were focused around teaching. They also gathered to one another as friends. Now you don't really look much like friends, so if you could just maybe huddle together slightly more, yeah. because the Bible says they shared their lives with each other. They ate meals together. They went in and out of each other's homes they hung out with one another they took their kids to the park on Saturdays to push them on the swings together the Bible also says that they broke bread together that doesn't just mean they went around smashing French sticks on each other's heads that describes them remembering the death of Christ by taking what we call the Lord's Supper breaking bread drinking wine and recalling the significance of Jesus on the cross so that was central to their practice as a church now they didn't do it all 3,000 of them necessarily all at once it says actually they did it in each other's homes while they were eating together So you get this feeling that the church was not a meeting. It was not a service. It was not just an event like coming to the Big Top at New Day. It was a family. It was a gathered people who belonged to each other. Then it describes them being a community that prayed. So this is a church that they they prayed themselves on their own. It says they were devoted to prayer. But also you get these pictures like in Acts 2 and Acts 4. You get these stories of prayer meetings where they came together. In Acts 4 it says they prayed for boldness and miracles. And after they'd finished praying together, the place where they were praying shook the building, that the, the place they were in was shaking with the presence of God and the power of God. In one of their prayer meetings, they prayed for one of the apostles, Peter, who was in prison. And as they were praying for him to be delivered from prison, he was miraculously delivered from prison. And he turned up at the door to let himself into the prayer meeting. And when someone went to answer the door, they were so surprised he was really there because they'd been busy praying for his freedom and it actually happened. This was also a church that was famous for signs and wonders. They laid hands on people and they got well. The Bible says that in Jerusalem, people from the neighboring towns would come to Jerusalem to find the followers of Christ, the followers of the way, so that they could get their sicknesses healed. In fact, it's so extreme, this church became known and the Bible describes it and says people around them were in awe and fear of what God was doing in terms of the miraculous. This wasn't like, oh, it'd be interesting to go and hear some teaching. This was, whoa, have you heard what's going down with those people that follow Jesus Christ of Nazareth? People get healed. People laid their sick in the streets in order that Peter, one of the apostles, would walk past and his shadow would fall on them and they would get healed as a result. And so this was a church known for signs and wonders. This was also a church known for amazing generosity. This is one of the features of the early church. Whenever there was a a need, they met it from within themselves. In Acts 4, it says they all had everything in common. They shared. They shared clothes. They shared houses. They shared resources. They shared skills. It says no one thought of their own stuff as belonging to themselves, but they considered it to be game on for everybody to share. There's a description in one of the stories in the Bible where Barnabas sells a piece of land that he has that belongs to him, and he brings all the money And he gives it to the apostles and he says, share this however you think best. There was this incredible sense of communal living and generosity. They took offerings for those outside of the church, but also they fed the vulnerable in their community. So in Acts 6, you see that they're feeding widows who haven't got a means of of earning money and therefore can't raise themselves. They're not, in those days, women couldn't work. They wouldn't be able to have a kind of a, a land ownership thing. So if you're a widowed, you're a dependent. And the church said, we will meet the needs of the vulnerable. This was a characteristic of the church. They remembered the poor amongst them. And they were totally committed to holiness. You know, one of the reasons is because one of their key couples in their church. Oh, can we act this one Yeah, out? Puma Girl. I'm afraid you are <laughs> going to become Anais and Sapphira, who lied to God 
and lied to the apostles. And do you know what God did? He killed her. (laughs) Now, if the other five standing there realize that one of our members lied to God and God dealt so seriously with sin, what characteristic do you think this church would have? They would be committed to holiness. They wouldn't mess around with the word of God and mess around with sin. And this was a church that was completely committed to the holy standards of what it is to live for Jesus. And they were a church full of servant-hearted leaders. So you see in Acts 6, this early church, instead of them having just, you know, a kind of an anarchic structure of everyone does anything. No, they appointed people to carry responsibility, to be in leadership, to serve what God was doing. So these are some of the things that we see in that very first church in Jerusalem, which is represented by these guys. These are some of the qualities that we see. And that is the kind of stuff that's meant to be in all churches. So this is like a blueprint for church. Yeah. So when you read the first few chapters of Acts, if you've never done it, I recommend that you do it. Um, You may not realize it, but actually it's years and years. So when these 12 apostles are called by, I'm looking at you because you are the 12 apostles uh, and 3,000 other people and some more by now. uh, When they're called, remember the, the mission that Jesus has given them is that they have to make disciples out of the whole world. Uh, But what they do actually for years and years and years is they stay in Jerusalem, teaching, making sure people have understood who Jesus is, what he did, why it matters. They've understood the scriptures, that they love one another, that holiness is present. They make sure this church really represents the kind of community that God wants on the earth. And then, then eventually it starts to break out a little bit. Uh, So uh, a guy called Philip, would you like to be Philip? Uh, You could be Philip. He comes over to Samaria over here. So uh, you can travel over. Uh, He travels over to Samaria and he starts preaching the gospel. There you go. If you stop there. And he starts preaching the gospel and praying for the sick. So he's learned from some of the apostles how to pray for the sick, how to preach the gospel. Philip over here comes and does that. And some people become Christians. Stand up. So if the four people standing around, Philip would like to stand up. There's some people that become Christians in Samaria. Thank you very much. New church. Um, Because they've seen God heal the sick. They've heard the gospel being preached. They want to become followers of Jesus as well. So this new church gets formed, but what they realize is oh, this church doesn't have everything worked out in the same way this church does. So Peter and John, uh, do you mind being Peter and John? You too. Uh, <laughs> uh, Peter and John could just do a little traveling visit, come over for a while, pray for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Lay teach hands on them, them a bit more about Jesus. Lay there we go. On. Help this church become all that they're going to need to become. But then Peter and John go back to Jerusalem again and carry on over there. Uh, and then what happens is Peter, um, would you like to be Peter, uh, gets this vision from God and he gets sent over to Caesarea over here where he meets a guy called Cornelius who's a Gentile. So this is the, the first time everyone in Jerusalem really is Jewish, so it's all Jewish people hearing about Jesus. People in Samaria are kind of half Jewish. This is the first time that some non-Jewish, a Gentile person gets to hear about Jesus. So Cornelius gets to hear, so Peter goes and tells him, and then Peter goes back to Jerusalem again. Good work. And some of his Peter, family get yeah, saved. Yeah, a couple of people can get saved with him as well, so maybe uh, you can stand up. Yep. There we go, got another church now. Then what happens, uh, there was a few more people in the church in Jerusalem by this point as well. So a few more people can stand up if you're just standing around the edge, don't be shy. Uh, So the church in Jerusalem is still this massive church, thousands of people. Then what happens is there's a massive persecution in Jerusalem. Okay, everyone around turn around and go, boo, and hiss at them. Oh, come on, proper persecution. (laughs) 
Proper there we go. persecution. Yeah, yeah. Like, start fighting them. You know? <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, and this church in Jerusalem, it says they had to scatter. So you guys can scatter uh, and spread out apart around. From, apart from a few of you, some of the apostles. Oh, stay yeah, in Peter the and John can stay perhaps okay, where scatter. you are. Um, and it says that they scattered, and as they scattered, they went and they told people about who Jesus was. And they went to different places, and it describes some of the places it went. And some of them in particular uh, went to a place called Antioch, where it says that they told the word not only to Jews, but to Greeks also. Find so whilst a Greek. they've just been mainly Jewish people here in Jerusalem, some unnamed people whose names we do not know uh, went to a place called Antioch, and it says a great number of people believed. Okay, you need a few so more. So we then. need a great number of people standing around Gather you. Gather together, Antioch Church. Who believe, come together, form a church. Bit closer to each other. The gr- it says the grace of God was upon them. Yeah, come on, let's have you know show, fellowship, tight show relationship, the love a little bit, get a bit closer, draw in. Go. Now, uh, Peter and John. Over here in Jerusalem, hear about everything that's happening over in Antioch. Um, so they, could you stand up? You're part of this um, Jerusalem church. There's this guy, Barnabas, who we've heard about. Good guy. Uh, he's been a faithful servant of the Lord. He's followed Jesus. He's known to the apostles. He's sold his possessions and goods to care for the poor. And so Peter and John send Barnabas over to Antioch. Uh, where he goes, and it says he encourages them. Could you go and encourage them? Very good. Thank you okay. very much. And he teaches them the word of God, and, and loads more. And some more people get saved. So maybe a few more people now that Barnabas has come. Perhaps a few more of you could become Christians and join this church. Maybe get, just could you get a bit closer together? Otherwise, we're going to run out of space. Uh, and um, so Barnabas is teaching them and encouraging them, and then Barnabas hears about something else dramatic that's happened. Over here. Uh, over here on the road to Damascus, the oh guy yeah. with the grey t-shirt with the telephone box. Yeah, over here, the, that's Saul. the Apostle Paul gets saved. Uh, he gets called by God to be a preacher to Gentiles. And he's over here, God's working in him, training him, teaching him the word of God. He's preaching. Barnabas thinks to himself, this is an amazing church that's being started in Antioch. But what I really need is someone like Paul. So Barnabas, could you go? It says that Barnabas went to get Paul. And uh, so he's going to come and get Paul over here. And he's going to take him back with him. And then you can go back together. And it says they spent a year together teaching the church. I think it says every day or just regularly they were teaching the church. So you two can teach the church. Turn around and teach them. That's it. That's good. Some good teaching going on there. Encouraging them. And what you see is a similar things happening. And it's quite important to get it in our heads because if, if you've got to tell like, I don't know how many people there were in the world in 33 AD. Let's take a guess that there was 500 million. It's probably less than that. Let's say it was 200 million. There was a lot of people in the world. And Jesus has told them, you've got to make disciples out of every nation. You've got to go and tell everyone in the whole world. In, on one level, it doesn't seem to make sense to spend so long in Jerusalem or to spend so long in Antioch. If you've got to tell the whole world, why are you spending so long in Antioch? But part of the, what they understood was if this message is going to go out, it's not just about telling as many people as possible. We've got to plant churches that are represent, representatives of God on the earth. 
We've got to form families where people learn to love one another. We've got to form communities where the truth is known and where the gospel is known, where people are generous to one another, where God can make us disciples together. I guess most of us were just in the session with Steph Liston hearing about how God created us not as just individuals to know him, but as people that need to be known and need to know one another. And that is worked out in the Christian life. That's worked out in churches. And so forming these churches in Jerusalem, in other places, and in Antioch, Jerusalem and Antioch in particular, they became massive churches that then would send out people again and again and again. So let me tell you a little bit about what the church in Antioch was like, because you heard a bit about the Jerusalem church. So the Antioch church obviously started by persecution, people ending up there. They didn't necessarily choose to go there. They were fleeing for their lives because where they had been was being destroyed. Actually, the apostle Paul, before he was Paul, was Saul, and he was a Jewish leader, and he basically spent his energy making sure that Christians got arrested and killed because he thought that they, that they weren't following the true God because they weren't following Jewish teaching. He's the guy that then ends up in Antioch teaching them about the doctrine of Jesus and teaching them what he's understood after his own conversion. So that church started out of people not from the area turning up there. And remember, they spoke to Greeks, Hellenists, and they spoke to local people. And the Bible says that that church was made up of loads of different types of people, people from different nations, different cultures, different languages. And so there was a kind of diversity in that church. They weren't all all the same. They didn't all wear hoodies and skinny jeans. They were, they were a group of people who had different backgrounds and so there was diversity. The Bible also says that was a church with different gifts. So in Acts 11, you, you, you hear the description of the Antioch church and it says now there were apostles and prophets at Antioch. Prophets and teachers. Thank you. I'm glad you know the Bible better than me. And the, and the important thing is that you start to see different gifts emerging in the church. And so you've got those that are going to teach the word of God, those that are going to teach doctrine, and you've got those who are moving in the supernatural gift of prophecy, who are hearing God and who are are sensing what he's saying and doing and who are involved in revelation of the word of God. And so you've got a guy called Agabus who is in the church and he's a prophet and he says there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem and he describes that to the church. And so you know what the church does because one of the characteristics of a church... Oh, we could do this, yeah. ...is that they're going to take an offering. Can you take an offering in Antioch, please? Pass, pass the buckets round. <laughs> it says that they all gave according to what they had. So some of you have got masses. You, you own houses and you've got land and you've got businesses. And some of you are poor and you haven't got much. But according to what you had, you give in. Because you know what? You know, Christians in Antioch, that the people in Jerusalem are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You may never have met them. You may never have done life alongside them. You may not even speak the same language as them. But instinctively, you know, because you're being taught well, that actually believers in Christ belong to one family. And so when one part of the family is suffering, another part of the family gets involved. And so they take an offering. So could someone bring the offering? Uh, Paul and Barnabas, could you bring the offering back to Jerusalem? Bring it back to Jerusalem because the, the church in Antioch was now in a place of resource where they were able to resource the church in Jerusalem through famine. Another thing about the Antioch church that's really significant is that you see that they, they prayed and they fasted. So, so just knit back, guys. Uh, travel back to your church. I want you all to now show me your best prayer and fasting faces. So clearly, none of, some of you have never fasted because you look far too happy. 
Okay, fasting's hard, it's tiring, and you don't have food, and it's difficult. So they prayed and they fasted. And do you know what they did when they were praying their fasting? They were seeking God for direction and vision to work out what they should do next, because they didn't believe that the work of God had stopped with them. They had, an, they had a sense of God's on the move. If, if all this stuff's happened in Caesarea, and this stuff's happened down here, and this stuff has happened over there, and the Christians are being scattered all over, they know there's going to be more, there's more churches coming. There's, there's growth in the kingdom. And so they, they, they prayed and they fasted, then they left laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas and they sent them, they commissioned them to go to actually strengthen and support other churches. So they're going to send Paul and Barnabas and Stu's going to tell us where they're heading Okay, to. so Paul and Barnabas then became basically travelling apostles and they go from Antioch and they basically travel around large parts of Asia and Europe and basically start new churches. So, I mean, you can go, where do you want to go first? Just go somewhere. Let's pick a few places. They go to a place, they go to Cyprus. Uh, you need to travel together. But in fact, you have actually just prophetically enacted what happened because after a while they have an argument and they split and they go separate ways. So now Paul and Barnabas are going their separate ways. Barnabas, who was you were Barnabas? You've gone off to Cyprus. Uh, Paul, uh, you can travel around and let's say you get to a place called Philippi and you preach the gospel in Philippi and people get saved. So you need to start a new church in Philippi. Uh, you get to just decide who becomes Christians now from now. Paul, you're the man. Uh, Paul then move on somewhere else. Uh, we're not doing this in the correct order, but he also goes to a place called Ephesus. So where do you want Ephesus to be? Yeah, pick a few people that are going to get saved in Ephesus. Great church gets started in Ephesus. Keep Ooh, going. Good church, look at that. Yeah, Ooh. good church. Uh, keep Rapid going somewhere else. He goes to Athens, preaches the gospel in Athens. A uh, very intellectual place, Athens. Very sophisticated. Yep, I see why you've chosen these people. Uh, he moves on. He goes to... Thessalonica, he goes to Thessalonica, starts a church in Thessalonica, and Paul basically, with others, travels around starting these new churches and uh, basically putting many of the same ingredients into these. So you can understand, in each of these churches now, this is the norm, okay? Signs and wonders is normal for them. They experience the power of God and people getting healed. The Bible says in Acts 14, in Lystra, there was a man who was completely crippled from birth and the disciples of Jesus spoke to him and the apostles and they said, be healed in the name of Jesus and he instantly was. And there was such a huge response from the people in Lystra that they thought that the God, the, the, the Greek gods had come to visit them. They said, Zeus has turned up in human form because there was such a dramatic sense of the supernatural arriving. That's what it's like when a church was planted in their community. They started to experience signs and wonders. They experienced the opening of homes. The Philippi church over here that started, you in the bright pink top, you're Lydia and you're the one that had a big house. You're a purple cloth dealer. You're quite an influential woman. You had quite a big business. You had a big household. You had space. And when you became a Christian, you said, you know what? Start the church in my house. But whilst that was happening, Paul got put in prison with Silas, the guy with the cap. And these two are in prison because actually another characteristic of church planting was persecution and opposition. Not everybody loved the growth of what was happening. A lot of the religious leaders refused to bow down to Jesus. They thought, they, they thought he wasn't the true God. They thought he was a, a heretic and they, and they were trying to snuff out the church. And so often you'd find stories of the apostles being pulled up in front of the Sanhedrin or in front of the council and being questioned for their faith and sometimes being put in prison and sometimes being killed. So actually, James, one of the apostles it describes, Peter and James were both taken into prison. James was killed. Peter continued to, to, to live. But that, that you sent opposition, significant opposition. But whilst Paul and Silas are in prison, do you know what they're doing? 
They're worshipping God and they're preaching the gospel. And then, and the people in the church are praying. And you know what? There's a massive earthquake and they get released from prison in a miraculous way because signs and wonders are part of the church. And so as they get released from prison, the jailer who's imprisoned them gets converted. So that's you with the animal top. So you're now a follower of Jesus. And so you're going to join the church at Lydia's house. So this church in Philippi has started because someone opened their home, because someone had resources and said, bring a gathering of God's people into my house. These churches were famous, and and you see it in the Bible. They were full of prayer. They were full of teaching. They were full of expectation, and they were full of salvation. Again and again and again, it describes the word of God growing. It describes, sometimes in in Acts, it says, after Paul planted a church in one place, it says, the whole nation or the whole continent heard the word of God. Because such was the impact of the church that the message of Jesus went on and on and on. And many of these churches multiplied into other churches. And so you can see now across the room from where we started 15 minutes ago, where we had no one standing up, and then we had the birth of the church in Acts 2 with Pentecost. We've now got maybe about half of the room coming to know Jesus and belonging to local communities. So that's how it was going. And what Paul then did, uh, having been around, travelled, started all these churches, he travels back around again visits all the churches that he's been to, encourages them um, with the word of God, um, and he appoints elders in each place. So you've got to go lay some so hands Paul on some goes people. Around, choose, basically they works are, there's out an elder. who are the people that are well grounded in truth. They're like the kind of fathers in the church. Their job is to make sure that doctrine stays true and that people stay in good character and and that the word of God is followed and honoured, and so they become the guardians of the church. They become like the fathers, the protectors of the truth, and that happens and happens again. And you can now all sit down. Thank you very Round much. Round of applause for all the Christian members in the Book of Acts. Now, sometimes when you read the Book of Acts, or even hear people talking about it, sometimes it can almost feel a bit depressing because it feels like, gosh, that is so different from my experience. Church seems a bit dull compared to everything that seems to happen. The truth actually is that the book of Acts tells a 30-year story. Um, and it, it's a little bit like, I don't know how much of you are into sport, uh, but you, know, you, can, like, you can watch a cricket game or you can watch the five-minute highlights clip. You know, And uh, I quite like cricket, so I could happily watch cricket all day. But for most people, watching cricket all day would be quite dull. But five minutes highlights cricket, clips you know you just get to see everyone that gets out and all the sixes and all the fours and all the drama and the book of acts is a little bit like that what you get to, it's like the highlights it's a 30-year highlights reel that you can just you 28 chapters you can read it through in a few days if you want or over a few weeks but you're getting 30 years of history you're getting all the best bits um, and some of the more challenging bits the truth is actually church life is actually quite similar to that there are moments of real drama, of real increase, of new churches being started. The story of New Frontiers, which many of the churches at New Day are part of, is not that dissimilar. It's a 30-year story of churches being started all over the world with moments of real drama and moments of real opposition. Moments where people have made mistakes and it's all gone wrong and moments where people have persevered. It's actually not that different from the book of Acts. Uh, the truth is then for 2,000 years with some peaks and some troughs, that process of Jesus building his church by calling people, saving people, starting new communities, which send people, which means that more people get saved and new communities get formed, that process has spread across the known world. And, uh, and so for hundreds of years after 
the book of Acts was written, and then for 2,000 years since, that has continued to happen. And at times, that's been like, felt like a bit of a snail's pace. And if you read church history, it's like not much seems to be happening at the moment. At other times, it has been breathtaking. And in, you know, a hundred years in China, whatever it might be, 200 million people become Christians. 100,000 people a day. Across this kind of massive spread of people. And so there's times where it's no one can keep up with it. No one even knows how many Christians there are because people are becoming Christians quicker than anyone can count. No one knows where all the churches are because you can't control it. It's just this kind of mushrooming growth. At times it's like that, at times it's slower. But Jesus, his promise that he made 2,000 years ago when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus has kept that promise for 2,000 years and the church has spread. And the way primarily it has spread is through the planting of new churches. And uh, planting new churches uh, is a little bit, in a way, it's a little bit like digging a well in a desert. Uh, It's hard work. Yeah, when you start a new church, you've got to put a shift in. Uh, And in fact, you might be putting, you're putting a lot of energy in and you might not be seeing much benefit for quite a while. It's just dig, 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 dig. You're kind of laying foundations, getting things going. It's hard work. But when you have dug a well, that well becomes a source of life to everyone around it in an ongoing way. So it, it, it might take two years to plant a church or to dig a well, as it were. But that church, if it's well-led, that could become a source of life to hundreds and thousands of people in that community for decades to come. So it takes a, a bit of effort to get it going, but it becomes a source of life. And what we're doing when we're planting churches is effectively we're going into new communities and we're saying, I am going to basically, or with God's help, God wants us, God is going to help us to to basically form something that becomes a community that gives life to its community for decades to come. And that is what is happening all around the world in hundreds of thousands of places that we don't even know about. Jesus is doing that through lots of unnamed believers telling their friends about Jesus and getting involved and building churches. Just a quick indication. Can you show me, raise your hand if you're currently in a church plant? Okay, raise your hand if you would like to be in a church right in the future. Okay, great. So we want to tell a little bit of our story just to help you understand how church planting has shaped us and been a part of our lives. So we both went to Bristol University when we were 19 years old. Um, We got together there and uh, became a couple and we joined a church plant. So we turned up at uni uh, first week, turned up at this meeting, what, like 35 people? maybe 40 people, had been going for about 12 months before we got there. And right from the get-go, we decided we were going to get stuck in. We weren't just going to occasionally go to church to help us stay as Christians throughout university. We were going to use our energy and time as students. And I can tell you, when you're a student, you have more energy and time in that stage of your life than you'll ever have ever again. So make the most of it when you get there. But we used our energy and our time to get stuck into the church. So we looked for ways we could get involved. And that, that happens in There are so many ways you can get stuck into a church plant. There are so many openings and opportunities. So for us, some of the things that we did was that, I think probably the first thing we did was that we believed 
in the vision that was being set by the leadership team. We listened to the pioneers who were saying, this is why we've come to the city. This is the kind of church we're going to plant. This is what it's going to look like. And we believed it. And then we said, okay, we're going to do our, our utmost to basically make that happen in reality. And so we served. We served in kids' work. We served in refreshments. We served in set-up and set-down. You know, the really glamorous roles when you get to church an hour early, put out all the chairs, and you stay right to the end, pack them all away. We did that. Stu served in the worship team despite being a novice on the guitar. Um, we served in hospitality we, we babysat for people in the church because we were students and we had time and we didn't have any responsibilities and so we went to other people's houses and we said we'll watch telly in your house or we'll sit and chat in your house whilst you can go out we served married couples and enabled them to have time on their own together we served one another as students we hung out with each other we invited people in we were hospitable this, our experience was that in a sense in church planting it was like relationships really matter you can't, the services weren't that big. It wasn't, there was no like major drama every Sunday for like a massive presentation of the gospel with hundreds of people. It was like 45 of us, you know, in a, in a hall. And so relationships became so key, knowing people. So we spent time getting to know other people in the church and we had a kind of whole church mentality. So we didn't just hang out with the people that were like us. We kind of figured, well, we're all in this together. So we hung out with all the people in the church. We were 19-year-old students. Uh, We were single at the time. We hung out with married couples. We hung out with families. We hung out with older people. We hung out with professionals, graduates. We built a family together in the church. And we also gave our money to the church. Now, you might think, but you were students. You didn't have any money. No, but we gave what we had. We gave out of what we had because we basically decided we're going to put our money where our mouth is. If we think this church thing is actually God's hope for Bristol, then we're going to put our money towards it. So we started giving even out of our meager like Pizza Hut and KFC jobs, which is where we earned our money in those days. We put our, we put our money into the church. We put our time into the church and we got stuck in. And, and the effect on us was amazing because we felt like we're doing this. We are actually building God's church using the resources that we've got. One of the things we remember that we particularly did was we committed ourselves to prayer. Uh, so when we were students, um, we all lit, there was a big halls of residence. There was about 2,000 students all lived in these halls of residence. There was maybe about eight or nine of us all went to the church that all gathered around there. Um, and we made a decision that we would we would meet each morning to pray, Monday to Friday. So it was right next to the Downs in Bristol. It's a big, massive kind of green area, one part of the city. So we met out on the Downs to pray. And uh, there was probably about eight or nine people that came occasionally. There was maybe four or five people on average there each day. Yours truly. <laughs> Livy was there every day. Uh, I was there most days. And there were some others as well. And uh, we prayed for our university friends. And we prayed for the church. And we prayed for the city. Um, and I think when we look back, back on that time, we see that as really foundational. In some ways, a lot of the stuff we were, the fruit we were praying for, we didn't see as much as we would have liked. We did it out of that prayer, praying group of students. We ran alpha courses among our friends. Our set, we just initiated ourselves, ran alpha courses each year we were at university. People did become Christians and started coming to the church through that, but not in the numbers that we were praying for. Um, but I think what happened was a lot of the fruit of that praying was being birthed in us, the prayers. Uh, and sometimes that's the way it works in prayer. We're praying for something out there and actually God is doing something in us. Uh, so out of that group of students, of those maybe eight or nine of us that prayed regularly, we obviously got married. That's great fruit. Uh, and ended up moving, to, uh, carried on serving the church in Bristol. But then, carried on move, then we moved to London to plant a church. 
Um, another two of the people that were in that group also got married to each other and came with us to come and plant the church in London. Uh, one of the guys got married to a friend of mine and spent 10 years, moved to the Middle East and spent 10 years planting a church in the Middle East and now has moved back to the UK and is helping to be involved in a church up in the north of England. Uh, another guy that was part of that group uh, married someone else and has moved to Turkey and is helping to plant and lead churches in Turkey. So from that group of praying students, God did something in us that has worked its way out in church planting in, around the world in quite an amazing way. And so sometimes it's just helpful to understand that. I guess some of what we're talking about might not be quite where you're at if you're 14 and you're thinking, great, but I'm probably not going to travel around and plant churches and appoint elders. So what does this mean for me? Maybe one of the things it means is that you could pray and you can get together with your friends and you can pray and God will do some stuff in you that bears fruit in years and decades to come. Um, then, having been in Bristol for about nine years, uh, we felt God speak to us. God spoke to me really clearly one day about moving uh, to Greenwich in particular in London. I had had a prophetic word, uh, an event a bit like this when I was about 22, something like that, uh, about moving to London in the future and being involved in church planting I didn't know when that was going to happen. I didn't even know if it was going to happen. It was just one of those things that had happened in my past and I kind of left it on the shelf to see what God would do. And then one day uh, God spoke to me really clearly and really effectively told me to move uh, to Greenwich to be involved in church planting in London. So I went and told Livy that that's what God had told me uh, and we talked about it and uh, we decided to obey the Lord uh, and six months later or so we moved house, moved to London, started a church and uh, we'd obviously had years of being in a church plant so this was our opportunity then to learn some of the lessons that we had learned from that and, and, and plant a church. And effectively what that meant for us uh, for the first year when we were planting that church it meant doing it in our house. So we talked earlier about how Lydia down here, I can't remember where Lydia was, there she was, how she opened her house. We opened our house and invited people in. Uh, And that started with six or seven of us when we first got there. And eight or nine months later, that was 35 of us kind of squeezed into our not that big front room, uh, at which point we decided that we needed to hire a venue and be a bit more public about this new church that was started. Uh, but I think that's really important to understand about church planting, the importance of hospitality. Livy mentioned it earlier. Livy is someone with many gifts. As many of you know, she's a great preacher. She prophesies. But for six months, the thing that probably helped us plant our church the most was the gift of hospitality. Opening the house, inviting people in, making them feel welcome. Our basic plan for how to plant a church was we would text people to invite them round. Livy would cook a meal, then we'd worship for a while, and I would try and teach people from the Bible about what it meant to be God's people. And that was it. That was kind of all we had. And amazingly, uh, But it somehow worked. God owned it. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that the, um, the cooking was a big part of that, um, God owning it, and people wanting to be a part of what we were doing. One of the things that also happened in that year, which is, was not uh, an enjoyable experience for us, was actually we faced really significant opposition 
as we planted the church. So uh, it, we, you kind of know that as a Christian, if you're going to sit your head above the parapet and if you're going to press for kingdom advance, you know that, there's, that there are territories, the Bible says, that are held in darkness. And when you plant a church, you're basically making a statement to spiritual powers that you're going to create an outpost of heaven somewhere. You're going to build one of God's communities and you know that's going to get opposed. So we were kind of ready for opposition, but we didn't think it was going to come in the way that it did to our door. So seven weeks after we arrived in London, we had two small children. I got sick and I ended up, this sounds bizarre, but I ended up in hospital with tonsillitis. But not any old tonsillitis. I'm talking not able to swallow, uh, needing to have drips put in you, being unconscious some of the time type tonsillitis. When she drank water, it came back out of her nose. I couldn't swallow anything, including How my own cool spit. cool is that? It was the most disgusting <laughs> illness I've ever had. I actually thought at one point, I'm actually going to die from this illness. Is this, like, is this the level of opposition? Anyway, I got better. I was taken out for quite a long time. I had to a very slow recovery process. And then we got back into all the cooking and the hosting. And, and then I got sick again, second time. And I was back in Lewisham Hospital. And I was there for a couple of days. And then I spent another month recovering at home. And we did all that, kind of got ourselves back into being able to host and build. And then I got sick a third time. And I was back in Lewisham Hospital again. And I think it was the third time... <laughs> We're a bit slow. That Stuart went out for a prayer walk. He had looking after two toddlers, wife in hospital. And he was like, God, I think we need to fight this. <laughs> I think God was like, hooray, you've realized. So we started gathering the church around to pray because actually we started to see this is attack against the church being established. Now, I wasn't the only one that was experiencing attack. We had people lose their jobs in the team. At one point, we had three people in the team all on crutches in the same week because of various different accidents and illnesses. And we experienced opposition. But the, the biggest thing that opposition did was it challenged our faith. Has God actually promised something here? Has he said he's going to do something? Have we got something to hold on to? And I tell you, you don't enjoy opposition when you're experiencing it. But if you experience it and you walk, take it to Jesus and you let him walk with you through it, you discover that he can use opposition to strengthen your faith. And that's what happened to us. I think we became more and more resilient and robust. We used to pray things like, you said, God, that you wanted a church in Greenwich. So you need to do something to make it happen. First of all, get live back to good health. Cut her tonsils out, that helped. But also, get, you know, br- give us breakthrough. We had to fight for a venue, didn't we? We had to, you know, right up to the, literally the last week when there was no time left to get a Sunday venue. We've had to fight at times for finance or for, uh, you know, the raising up of leaders or different things when there's opposition. But actually, your faith can get stirred by that. And you can find that in that place of opposition, actually, God does something in you which makes you resolved that you know this is his work. He said he was the head of the church, not us. And therefore, church planting is tough, and we don't want you to think, to sit down and listen to a great story and think, I'm just going to go and do it, and it'll be like a walk in the park. It won't. Every situation we've ever seen when we've seen people plant churches, there have been times that have been a test and a struggle, and there's discouragement, and there can be hardship, and there can be disappointment, and sometimes circumstantially things don't turn out like you wanted. But if you know God's spoken your faith is strengthened and you can press through with that. Yeah. Our experience and 2,000 years of church history has proved that Jesus was in fact correct when he said that the gates of hell will oppose him, but that he will build the church. That's what's been happening for 2,000 years. That's what happens when you try and start a new one and dig a well that's going to support and bring life to the community around you. I think we should just change our plans slightly here and um, um, just see if there are any questions that people want to ask and then we can always finish off with anything else we want to say. So I'm, I'm going to suggest this. For 30 seconds, you turn to the person next to you or someone around you and just say, if you were going to ask a question, 
what would it be or have you got a question that you feel like you want to ask and then we'll take maybe five or ten minutes or whatever to see if there's any questions that people want to ask um, so basically between two or three of you form your best question if you've got one in 30 seconds and then we'll give you a shout okay if you've got a question you want to ask us can you whack your hand in the air oh great great okay. there's a few questions okay let's um, let's start here and then um, we'll see where we go Okay, good question. Uh, every church starts as a church plant. How do you know when to transition to have things like budgets and when would you send new people to start other churches? Um, it's going to be difficult to answer because I think it, it's going to vary massively in different parts of the world, different cultures, and even there's different approaches. Some churches, even you know, that would be here, would, would say actually when they get to about 80 or 90 people, they feel like that's their best number. They know how to do that really well. When they get that, they're going to send some people and start another group of 80 or 90. And that's the best way to keep things multiplying. Other churches, there's just one church and they're going to keep going to 1,000. Uh, and that's part of their vision. That kind of usually a lot of these decisions are a reflection of the calling and the gifting of the person and the team leading the church. So people are just gifted in different ways. They've got different experiences. Um, practical, as, as things develop, things get more organized. So I always say, like, when it was meeting in our home, we were fine. Once the church got past about 30 people, that was the limit of my organizational gift was reached. Once I could know, those days, you could only get 25 people on a group text. Once we went past 25 people on a group text, it became too complicated for me to organize it. And then it was like, right, we've got, things have got to develop. There needs to be different people organizing. There needs to be teams running things. Obviously, once we started a Sunday meeting, gets loads more complicated and loads more expensive Uh, so that was a big decision like when do we become more public we wanted to have a season where we would we were kind of out of the public view where we could just meet in our house get to know each other we were laying foundations really what what do we believe what does the bible teach about the church what kind of church we're going to be we wanted to kind of get that and set that in place before we started putting all our energy into now we're running a sunday meeting and we also wanted to make sure there was enough of us that we could run a Sunday meeting and it would be reasonably decent and not like, uh, now I'm leading worship, but I'm also looking after my kids and doing, you know, like, it, actually there's enough people in the room that we can have a band to lead worship and we can have different people on the welcome team. And so that was part, and, but that was part of the way we wanted to do it. Not everyone would do it exactly the same. So that you can always ask some more questions another time. But uh, who are who other questions? Who hand up? Oh, yeah, however... great question how do you deal with planting a church in an area that discriminates against christians i guess it depends what kind of discrimination you mean it it, our friends move to the middle east to plant a church in a nation where it's illegal to try and encourage people to convert from um, a particular faith and so you can't just like advertise a sunday meeting and say hey everyone come and hear about jesus so a lot of it is much more to do with the ministry that you have in your daily life where you work the people that you're reaching out to sharing the gospel in appropriate ways invite people into your home studying the bible together and you can't ever go public with a with a kind of sunday service in that way so much more much smaller churches much more like house church context that would be where like on a civil scale society wise you just can't have an open church i think when you're talking about planning a church in a community where people are hostile to the gospel but not it's not necessarily going to be an issue of legality then you're looking at ways to engage with people and be culturally relevant to them, to contextualize to them, but also to understand that you can't 
Uh, that, like, at the end of the day, the church has to stand for truth and people are going to oppose the truth. So probably the most powerful message in, in terms of how you communicate Jesus to people is how you live. And so if you've got a community of believers who are committed to loving people, even if they're opposed to Jesus, who are committed to being gracious, to being, you know, generous hearted, to doing their jobs really well, to raising their kids with values that come from the Bible, that will, that will speak to that community of hostility rather than like standing on the street corner and like shouting out about Jesus and then getting people shouting back at you because that's actually an ineffective way to reach people. So it kind of depends on where you are. I mean, in one sense, it's helpful for us to think we might have, we might in our minds still think of ourselves as a Christian country because our kind of, our legal system is based on Christian values and because our whole kind of, you know, school system started under the church. And But actually the reality is our culture's values are really not Christian at all anymore. Like, Belief in God is becoming highly unfashionable and belief in moral absolutes is actually becoming highly unfashionable. So we are now planting churches. You, you all live in towns that are hostile to Jesus. If you haven't yet realized that, it might be because you're only really engaging with Christians. But when you start to engage with, on social media, with friends, with people that you work with, with the value systems of, of how our nation is structured, you realize actually the UK is hostile to Christians and to churches. But it doesn't mean that we stop being bold and remember, the Bible gives us the story of the church in a context yeah. that was full of hostility. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Inside knowledge there. Yeah, gosh. Hot off the press. Uh, so the question was, we obviously went and planted a church. and then So we didn't get to tell the whole story. But from our church in Greenwich, we planted into New Cross, which is down the road, which is always part of our vision at the beginning. Actually, what happened was when we went to London, we knew that God had called us to plant a church in Greenwich, but we also felt that God had really called us to London um, and that part of probably the rest of our lives would be helping to start new churches across the city. Um, And we knew at the time that we wanted to start lots of churches that would reach their local communities, um, but that we didn't want those churches to be separate from each other we wanted them to kind of just be able to stay in partnership that leaders could pray together encourage one another some things we could do better together than we would do separately and so we but we hadn't worked out what that would look like practically um so um it was two years ago that we started the group in publicly meeting in new cross um and we weren't quite sure how that should work basically and then I think what we found is because it's still relatively small um, and trying to work out, we're actually better staying at the moment for at least for a while, we're better staying closer together than drifting apart. And if we just kind of carried on, we'd drift into two separate churches and we felt like we wanted to stay closer together, that that would serve Greenwich and New Cross better and it would enable us to start new things quicker than if we were trying to separate out and become so we just, so the multi-site thing is a bit of a you know in a way it's the last five or ten years has become a big thing when we moved before we really knew much about multi-site we knew we wanted to do something that would have separate locations working together we just didn't quite know how that would work practically so we that's why we made the decision that we made good question All right we've probably got time for one, one more, more yes yeah, that, so that is a really good question. Yeah, you know when she said when our, we were called to Greenwich, it was really clear. How is it so clear? I didn't tell the story partly because it just takes a little bit of time to tell the story, but uh, it's, it's difficult to tell it briefly. Um, I, I am not someone that actually feels like I hear really clearly from God all the time. Um, 
so there's probably a few moments in my life that I would say it was much clearer. So first of all, I had this prophetic word from when I was about 22, like I did mention, that was about in, the, in my future, I'd return to London, be involved in church planting with a particular person was named in that prophetic word. Um, and then one day um, I had a phone call with my dad, uh, which actually was, <laughs> believe it or not, most of you won't believe this except my sister who's in the room somewhere. Uh, I had a phone call with my dad. It was the only time I had a phone call from my dad in 10 years in Bristol. <laughs> so <laughs> he rang me and we talked on the phone. So it was an unusual occurrence. And he's talked about Greenwich and their church were involved in Greenwich. And we kind of talked about it in conversation. And then I came off the phone and I went and did some washing up. Now that happens all the time uh, in our house. Um, so I was washing up. And as I was washing up, I thought I, it kind of dropped into my head. If I moved to Greenwich and started a church, that would be the exact fulfillment of that prophetic word that I had seven or eight years ago. And as that thought dropped into my head, um, I was basically kind of overcome by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And I was literally, I was washing up at the time and I was knocked backwards and nearly knocked onto the floor. And that doesn't happen to me very often. So I was like, okay, I think maybe God is trying to get my attention. Um, there must be something about this whole idea of me moving to Greenwich. Um, and it, in retrospect, it, was, it totally fitted with where I was at in life. At the time, I wasn't actually planning to move anywhere. I wasn't praying about whether we would go and plant a church. If anything, I had concluded that we wouldn't, I would never be able to lead a church plant. I wasn't the right kind of person to, to get one started. Um, but it was, so in that sense, it was very clear because it wasn't like my own thinking that kind of reached a conclusion. It was like out of the blue, God did something. There's actually more to the story about that. It went on, but I haven't got time to tell it all. Not everyone has that story. So often people who are thinking about church planting come and ask me the question, how did you know it was right to start a church? And I normally, I normally have to say, I'm not going to be very much help to you because I didn't have to go through that process of praying and discerning and weighing what God was saying. God just did something quite supernatural and sovereign um, in my life. Can I, um, I just chip in at that? Yeah. I think two things. One to say is that God didn't speak to me about church planting in that in that environment, in that moment. And actually for me, the issue became hearing Stu describe what he felt God had said to, to him for us and being obedient to what God had said without hearing him for myself, without having a kind of washing up moment of my own. But also that was particularly to do with leading a church plant. That was a kind of a commission that God was giving Stu, like a, a call, like a kind of, this is what I want you to do with your life. And actually it's quite a big deal to know a sense of call to lead a church plant because you're basically going to ask other people to come with you. And, you're ba- and that's what we did. You're going to ask people to basically give up where they are to come with you to start a new life. And you're inviting them on an adventure, but you know, you've got to know God's told you to do that. Otherwise, you're basically inviting people to come into something that's going to be quite tough. When we were 18 years old and we went to university, we didn't, neither of us had like a eureka moment of God saying, now thou shalt go to Bristol. We, we, we looked at universities. We had a heart to be involved in churches. I particularly wanted to be involved in a church plant. And so it wasn't like a kind of the same sort of moment of, shall I join a church plant? Shall I not? Well, I haven't had a flashing light in the sky telling me to. It was actually a series of decisions. What does it require of me to be in a church plant? Am I in a place in my faith where I can do that? Is there one happening in a city where I want to go and study? Who's leading it? Can I get behind their vision? So both those types of decision-making are really valid. Having 
kind of moments when God seems to just lay his agenda on you and you say, yes, Lord, we will go. But also having conversations that are strategic, that are wise, that are measured, thinking through your life choices, thinking through where you're at at that stage in your faith. Like we'll sometimes say to people, when we first started the church, people would come and say, can we join your team? And we would talk to them about where they were at as disciples of Jesus. And we would say, no, you can't. Because we can't actually look after you in this church plant. This is like all hands on deck. This is a streamlined version of church. You need to go to another church down the road for a few years. And when we're bigger and more resourced, come and join us. And there is actually some wisdom in choosing whether or not you put yourself into a planting environment. Because you have to be able to self-feed. You have to be able to look after your own walk with Jesus in a way that you might, you might just get a lot less support from a church plant than you'll get from an established church. Yeah. The only thing I'd say, and then obviously we need to hand over to Steve, I would just say if you are thinking about, if, when people are thinking about planting a church, I would say to people, don't plant a church unless someone has got a real clear calling from God for it. Now, sometimes that is the church planter. Sometimes actually there's someone that may feel like, like God's called me to help start 10 churches in this city and you can feel cool to be a part of that whole thing. But there's, there's someone there that's got a real sense of direct calling from God. I would, I would not want to go and start a church somewhere unless there's someone who's got a real clear sense of calling and direction from God to do it. And I would warn anyone off just going because they think it sounds like it'll be fun. <laughs> I want to say to you that The reason we could go on for a very long time here and you don't really want to move is because these guys are practitioners and they carry a wisdom that's come through the years of doing this stuff. And they've set a foundation really for what the rest of the week in this venue is about. Okay, so tomorrow we're going to get Rob in here, who's an expert or, and, and just been pioneering in evangelism right across the country, actually. Um, because as you moved with the church, you're getting the idea that the church is at the heart of this thing called mission, right? So as we've now explored about going and talking to other people, we need to talk about evangelism. As we've talked about some people going off to other nations, we need to go and bring in people that have gone to other nations to talk about that. As we go to, to talk about serving the poor and taking collections, we've brought people to come and speak about that. And then at the end of the week, these kind of, well, questions of what am I called to, um, we're really going to unpack that on the last day. We're going to pray. We're going to process. We're going to come alongside people and say, uh, and, and say what we believe God is calling on your life, what, what you might believe God is calling on my life. We're going to do this together. In this room, I counted, there's about 120 of us. And most of you put your hands up and said, I'm either in a church plant or I'm up for this. This is at the heart of mission. So I just want to encourage you to journey with this and journey with all the practitioners the people that are doing it on the grounds there's so much wisdom from the people that are going to speak and I'd love you just to kind of applaud these guys and say thank you for the wisdom that they've given us this morning it's good (laughs) and the last thing to say is that outside in this venue are a bunch of opportunities around the world and in this countries, connected with various spheres um, in New Frontiers, all over on the family of churches um, that we're a part of, that you can go and look at places, see what opportunities are there, see if you want to take an internship, uh, go and be in a church planting situation, go and be equipped in another church to be ready for that kind of situation, looking at what's going on in the nations, that's what's going on in this venue um, to help you. If you want to stay now and ask questions, I'm here, these guys will probably be here, we won't be here forever, but if you want to, we're here other than that have a great day enjoy a new day Uh, go and have fun go and digest what God's been saying to you and we'd love to see you back tomorrow